Open up in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We are uh, kind of turning the corner nearing the end of our study in this, in this awesome book. And I don't know about you, but it's been uh, uh, stretching, been encouraging and convicting and challenging for me. This is a book that's all about the meaning of life. And really, he spends so much time uh, helping us to clarify the things that aren't the meaning of life. This book is, is very humbling. Uh, this, this book right here, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, a, a classic, one of my favorite books. Uh, I love the way he speaks in such a, a very straightforward, uh, clear way. Uh, I, I love how challenging and convicting this book is. My favorite chapter in the whole book is chapter 8, which is called The Great Sin. And uh, I would love to read the entire chapter to you, but I won't. Uh, I'm just going to read the first paragraph, and then you go, go home and pull the book off your bookshelf and, and read the rest. He says here in chapter 8, Today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they're cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. At the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. He goes on to say that, that pride is the essential vice, the utmost evil. The things like unchastity and anger and greed and drunkenness, he says those are all mere flea bites in comparison. Pride ultimately leads to every other sin. Here in, in Ecclesiastes, uh, the preacher of this sermon has revealed the vanity of all of these earthly pursuits. Things like pursuing wealth and pleasure and food and drink, even work. His conclusion, again, is that those things are not the meaning of life. They're not supposed to be our reason for existing. Those things are gifts from God and are supposed to be received with gratitude, and they're supposed to deepen our relationship with Him. That's the meaning of life, our relationship with God, our Creator. And the, and the, and the culmination of this argument we saw just a couple of weeks ago, right in the middle of, of the sermon in chapter 5, 
He says in chapter 5, verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil, this is the gift of God. For He will not much remember the days of His life because God keeps Him occupied with joy in His heart. The ability to just enjoy this life that God has given us. And, and, and enjoy our jobs and enjoy our stuff and enjoy our spouse and, and sleep well at night. That is a gift from God. And we, we can learn this kind of joy. We can have this kind of joy when we learn to be content in our lot in life and receive it as a good gift from our loving Father. Which seems so simple, right? It sounds so easy. It's so easy to say, but so much harder for us to do. Why, why do we still keep foolishly striving after worthless, meaningless things, even though we know, we know in our head and in our heart that those things are meaningless? Why do we fail to find contentment in what God has given us? Why do we keep trading true meaning for things that are futile and fleeting? And I think the answer has to do with what C.S. Lewis rightly identifies as the great sin. Our struggle for meaning and for peace, it goes, it goes right back to this struggle with pride. Because this, this selfishness that we all possess is so deep-rooted and it's so insidious and it's so thoroughly debilitating that I don't even think we realize how much it messes us up. How much it robs us of joy. Essentially, pride prevents us from being able to see and recognize and accept God as, as sovereign and as our Creator. Pride makes us want to be the ones that are the center, that are the most important. And so then we have to go and search for meaning and significance in other things. Things outside of God. Because we don't want to submit to Him or anything else. Pride, it, it hurts. It, it ruins our relationship with God, our Creator, and it ruins our relationships with other people, and it hurts us. That's why it is this, this awesome gift of God to be able to enjoy our possessions and our work and our life as dearly loved children. But I think it, in order to receive that gift that God wants to give us of contentment and peace and joy, it requires humility. It requires tearing down that pride and that process of tearing down our pride is often painful. The chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes here contains some of the most confusing verses in, in the whole sermon. I got, I got a stack of commentaries written by some really wise scholars who all have slightly different understandings of what, what this means. And I, 
I think ultimately, though, I agree with the guys who, who say that re- really the linchpin that holds this all together, the, the main uh, thrust behind the entire chapter is this, this idea that there needs to be humility, this, this concept of how humility is built in us and why it is so important for us in our relationship with God. I think that the preacher is showing us this list of ways that humility helps us find true meaning in life. And first, right off the bat, he explains that humility is something that, that deepens. It grows. It, it's built in us often through sorrow. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than a good ointment. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Man, those first few verses are tough, right? What he's saying there is stretching for us. Why on earth would he say that it's better to go into the house of mourning than into a house of feasting? That doesn't seem like a fun place to hang out. That doesn't seem better to me. I think, I think the reason is because funerals are humbling. Because at a funeral, we can't help but face our mortality. And, and we're forced to think about eternal things. And we're forced to realize that we aren't in control and that we aren't going to live forever and that we will too one day die. I can preach the gospel message at a funeral And know that the people there are way more tuned in. They're way more acutely aware of their own mortality. Why why would he say that sorrow is better than laughter? Why does a sad face make a glad heart? I think the answer is because of humility. Because in times of sorrow, we are brought back down to earth when our faces spend a few minutes downcast, usually the result is, is a, a heart that returns back to the one who we know can lift us up. 
He says that the rebuke of a wise man, even even though it might sting, is so much better than some foolish song. I mean, singing happy songs is nice. It's okay. But a rebuke that will humble us can save us from hell. And because of that, it's so much better. I I think that's the whole idea here. The idea is that our selfish pride is deadly. It is so much worse than we think it is. It's fatal. It can destroy us spiritually and emotionally and physically. And and so if there's anything in this world that will humble us, then it's good because it's going to rescue us. It's going to save us from that sinful pride and help us to realize our need for God. Over in 2 Corinthians, Paul is addressing this whole issue of of pride and arrogance. And he he recognizes that that he's a guy that's prone to it. And if there's anybody that has a reason to be arrogant, it's Paul. I was born in a good family. I I kept all the rules. I was a good Jew. I did everything I was supposed to. Not only that, but I got to see Jesus. I got to see him to experience him. I got all these great visions that God gave me and God's called me into ministry and God's given me all of these neat things. Paul had reasons to brag. He recognized the danger of being arrogant. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. To keep me from becoming conceited, because he recognized that that was very likely. Because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, the messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Those words make absolutely no sense. Unless we believe that our pride hurts us and will ruin us and will kill us and only humility can save us and rescue us. It's not that Paul enjoys suffering, right? I mean, he's prayed repeatedly for God to take this thing away. But God's answer was no. It's it's there on purpose. It's there for a reason. This pain that you're experiencing, Paul, has a purpose. And that purpose was to keep him from becoming conceited. It was to humble him. And in, in that humbling, show him how much he still needed God. And it reminded him that his power, all of the things that he thought were so great about him, were nothing. He wanted Christ's power to rest on him instead. Oh, wow. When we are weak and humbled, that's when we can find this strength in Christ, this true strength. 
That is amazing. God, I, I am an arrogant and prideful man. And God, I want you to humble me through whatever means necessary. God, I want you to weaken me so that I'll find my strength in you alone. That is a tough prayer to pray. In Ecclesiastes 7 here, he says that a patient spirit is better than a proud one. Right? I mean, knowledge and wisdom, they have the ability to keep us from saying and doing foolish things. Wisdom and knowledge are like life preservers. Humility in our, in our demeanor and in our words and in our actions keep us from saying and doing foolish things. So often, God will use those difficult stretching times, those places of sorrow and mourning to build humility in us. God wants to bring us to this place where we recognize that He is sovereign, that He's in control, that He's the one that's God and not us. Humility will recognize that in every circumstance of life, God is sovereign. And that's really, I think that's the whole purpose of this whole humility thing to get us to realize that we're the creature, not the creator, and that we're the children, and that He's the Father. Look at verse 13 of chapter 7. He says, Consider the work of God. Who is able to straighten what He has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that, the man, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Okay, so I, it's easy to do the first part. In the day of prosperity, rejoice. We've got that down. It's the second part that we still don't do all that well. In the day of adversity, consider God has made that day just like He made the day of prosperity. Both with a purpose. Both for our good. So that means whatever day it is, whatever day day is for you, whether this is a good day for you or a bad day for you or a rough day for you, whatever's going to happen later in the day, whatever happens the next day, God's in control. God is sovereign. We can say with confidence that this is the day that the Lord has made and we can rejoice and be glad in it, right? No matter what the day holds. Because God is sovereign. Why has God allowed those days of adversity? We already know the answer, right? We already know why. It's to humble us. So when that thorn in your side is just a little bit extra pokey, remember that God's grace is sufficient for us. Humility accepts and, and understands, it recognizes God's sovereignty. But, but true wisdom doesn't just accept God's sovereignty, it rejoices in the fact that God is sovereign. 
Those who are truly wise rest in God's sovereignty instead of always freaking out about the things that are going on around them. People who are, who are humbly, uh, humble and truly wise can rest in God's sovereignty and don't have to go through that exhausting effort of trying to always be in control of everything. People who are wise aren't constantly trying to straighten out what God has bent. Those who are wise can just rest that God's in control and they don't have to predict the future. And that, that humility is, that, is the key that helps us unlock that trust in God's sovereignty and gives us the ability to just rest in Him. For, for most people, especially those who, who, who don't have any kind of faith in God, uh, a lot of times a, a pride takes this form of, of self-sufficiency, Right, we've we've seen that, we've experienced that. Uh, a pride gives us this fake illusion of control that we're in charge of our own fate and what we're doing and where we're going. Many people don't think they need God, they don't want God, uh, they even blame God for the bad things that happen, but usually take credit for the good things that happen. Weird how that works. They live for themselves, only care about themselves. These are the kinds of people that the preacher of Ecclesiastes describes as foolish. But there's, there's another kind of fool. Not, it's not just those who are anti-God unbelievers. There's another kind of fool that he deals with here. And, and, and this is the person who is hyper-religious. This is the, the holier-than-thou kind of Christian. The self-righteous person. This is a person who believes in God and they believe that they're God's favorite. They, they do everything right. They keep all the rules. They are better than you in so many ways. They strive with everything they have to avoid all appearances of evil. And they think they're super righteous and super wise. And this kind of arrogance is every bit as destructive to us and repulsive to God. The true humility won't create a Pharisee. True humility will result in balance in our lives. I think that's the idea that he's getting at behind these next few verses. Look at verse 15. He says, I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. And then he says this, do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you grasp the one thing and also not let go of the other. The one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Okay, what does that mean? Right? What, what is he talking about? There's some tough verses to interpret. 
don't be overly righteous? Is that even possible to be just a little bit too righteous? Uh, don't make yourself too wise? Okay, finally, there's a biblical mandate that I can achieve, right? I'm there. What does it mean to be too righteous and too wise? And why does that lead to self-destruction? Now that stack of commentaries, some of them say that what he's talking about here is self-righteousness. And I think that makes some sense. And self-righteousness isn't really righteousness. It's just this hyper-religious form of arrogance. It's, it's this pride where we think we're good. Really, really, really good. And it's usually found in those people who are trying to keep all of the rules and maintain this appearance of perfection in everything they do. Some think that this is talking about, about legalistic people. And I, I think that makes sense. That, that sounds right. Uh, the, in our day, this might be a denomination uh, that seems to be all about this long list of rules that you have to keep. Right? You can't smoke and you can't chew and you can't go with girls that do. You can't watch movies and you can't dance and you can't play cards and you can't drink unless no one's watching. Uh, you can't wear pants. You can't wear hats. You can't wear shorts. You can't have tattoos or piercings or, or no, no wearing pearls in church or no watching SpongeBob SquarePants. No, no books about unicorns. No, no eating beans near an open flame. No hairless cat. There's just this long list of rules. It's exhausting, and they never end. There's always new ones. Legalism is tiring. It, it's it's this, this futile attempt to, to achieve perfection, sinless perfection in this life, which is not possible. And in, in trying to do that, in striving to do that, we only end up ruining ourselves. I think that's what he's saying here. I know he says, don't listen, don't don't be overly wicked. Don't be a fool. That doesn't make any sense. The one who fears God is going to come forth with both of them. He's he's not telling us to be a little bit unrighteous or a little bit unwise. I think he's just calling us to humility with both. The one who humbly acknowledges God will recognize that they aren't righteous. That they aren't going to be righteous. That they aren't wise. At the same time, they're going to do all they can to avoid evil and sin and foolishness. There is humility in understanding that we don't save ourselves. We don't work our way into heaven. There is humility in the ability to acknowledge God's grace in the midst of our weakness. There's humility in admitting that we are just not all that wise. We need to have a balanced view of ourselves. Not, not pretending to be perfect and not pursuing evil. I think that that makes sense in light of what he has to say next in verse 19. 
says wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Here the preacher is saying, listen, wisdom is good. It's, it's an awesome thing. It's, don't get me wrong. It gives strength more than ten rulers in a city. It's a great thing to be wise. But there is not a righteous person on this earth who does good and who never sins. Don't forget that. Here I think uh, Solomon is just singing the song that he heard his father David sing. It's the song that David sings in Psalm 14. And that same chorus is picked up again by the Apostle Paul over in the book of Romans. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Paul says those words in the context of those first three chapters of Romans that are all about showing how sinful and bent we are. Everyone, regardless of where you stand, whether you're a Gentile or a Jew even. He's writing to these Jewish people who thought that because of their family history, because of their lineage, because they were the chosen people, that that they they were good. They were in. But Paul says, no, there's none of us that's righteous. Righteousness is not attainable on our own efforts. Paul goes on to say this in Romans 3.21. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Paul is simply saying there is that there is no righteousness in us. It's it's a gift that's given through faith in Jesus Christ. And it takes humility for us to be able to come to this place where we confess our sin and our weakness and our unrighteousness and admit that we need Jesus It takes humility to admit that all of the good things that we think we do are like filthy rags before God. And instead, cry out for for this righteousness that's offered through faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's this righteousness that makes us right before God. Not our own. It's His perfection that cleanses us. Not our efforts. There's no doubt that the great sin is pride. Our great struggle is with pride. And the ability to humbly acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for God is a gift from God. 
and there is absolutely no, no salvation, no justification without humbly placing our faith in Jesus. He's the one who alone is righteous. Amen? Thank you, God, for bringing these things into our lives to humble us. God, we do thank you. We praise you for the things that you bring into our lives that are sometimes painful. But help us to recognize that they are there to humble us or to cause us to cling tighter to You. Help us to recognize that through those difficult things, Your grace is always sufficient. It's always enough. God, we admit that we are arrogant, prideful people. We understand that that pride hurts our relationships with other people and with you and ourselves. And so we ask you, God, to tear it down. Do whatever you have to do to humble us. God, help us to realize that you are all that we need. Help us to cling fast to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.